Heavenly Father, we come before Thee grateful for Thy Son, Jesus Christ, for Thy salvation, and for all the blessings that Thou hast given to us. I pray, Lord, tonight that we would have a reverence, a holy reverence for Thy Word, that we would exalt Thee in our hearts tonight, that by the power of thy spirit we may learn something, that thou wouldst renew our minds, renew our hearts, and help us to go from this place loving thee more. Lord, I ask for thy help, for I am a lowly sinner who needs thy grace. Help us to attain unto thy knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In chapter 10, if you want to turn there in Hosea, the prophet continues to charge Israel with their various infidelities, specifically in their worship. If you remember, they had purposed to, they, they, they had intentionally purposed to neglect the word of the Lord. And we're now, shortly, about to be destroyed for their sin and lack of knowledge. As we continue our study through Hosea, it is important that we see ourselves in Israel right now. For, for what they're doing, see those parts in our hearts that are impure, that, that we need to give to the Lord. And keep in mind that the scriptures are the way that we, we do that. Israel had not only mixed Jehovah worship with Baal worship externally, they had also, and more importantly, done it in their heart. As we attend the Lord's Day service, as we attend Bible study and conference, we must do so first out of our heart. We must attain to heart worship. Otherwise, all of the externalities of our physical religion will be of naught to us. Of naught to us. So though much of this sin and these types of sins can be said to be caused by ignorance, the Lord does not give Israel a pass. Why? Because he is just and he is faithful to himself. When the people of God, like Israel was doing here, neglect God's word... It is easy to, it is easy to sacrifice upon strange altars out of ignorance, even to the point where they might genuinely believe that they were doing the right thing. And so we can't be too haughty here. We cannot be too haughty to believe that we ourselves might not fall into such sin sin should we neglect the means of grace and the word of God. This is a reminder for us. Firstly, not to neglect the word of the Lord, but also not to neglect Christ in prayer, in worship, and devotion. We have full access to not only the scriptures, the full revelation of Christ, but we have access to Christ himself. We have access to God in Christ. And unlike Israel here, us, knowing that the types and shadows have fallen away completely, we see as much as we can here on earth, 
of the revelation of God in Christ. We do not have ceremonial systems which get in our way and merely point to and represent Christ. We have the full view of Christ, crucified, raised from the dead, and seated at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for his people. So let us glory in that tonight. Let us be grateful for that tonight, that we have access to God. And so though we being men, just as Israel was men, we are just as prone to wander in our flesh. We must take hold of Christ in our idolatry, in our rebellion, and in our sin. We have access in Christ to approach God with boldness by the Holy Spirit. And so as we get into our study tonight, remind yourselves not to neglect this beautiful truth, dear church. This wonderful, glorious truth. In Hosea, we've read that God utilizes marriage imagery. He shows, in contrast to Israel, his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. And he does so by judgment and mercy, which all flow from his faithfulness and his love and his good and just character. God is right in his judgment of Israel, for they have played the harlot, and he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. In chapter 10, Hosea continues to charge Israel with corruptions to their worship their administration and government. They're imitating the sins of their fathers. And so they are called to repent and return, or they will be destroyed. Starting in verse 1, if you're there, chapter 10, verse 1 of Hosea. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. Three observations from this text. Israel is an empty vine. They have no fruit that is brought forth by God or for God. They have no godliness or virtue, which makes them useless. They are a useless vine because they bring forth no good fruit unto God. The second observation is that Israel brings forth fruit, but unto themselves. Their worship is guided by their own machinations, and the fruit they have brought forth is multiplication of their altars. They do not see God in their worship. They seek after themselves. How many times in our life do we do this? I don't want to do this. I don't want to fellowship. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to go to the Lord's Day service or Friday night or Thursday night. I have something else to attain unto. I have something that will suit my fancy more. And while Israel's sin here is much more grievous than mere forsaking of the gathering, we need to be people that see the types here, the type of sin that that is, the place where that flows from, That place where that flows from. The third point is that Israel has not done so according to themselves, but according to the goodness of the land. Has not only done so according to themselves, but according to the goodness of the land. Which means instead of praising God for the fruit of the land, they spoiled their wealth by placing it upon the altars of Baal. They glorified the creation and not he who created. They had forgotten willingly. That he that eateth, eateth to the Lord. That all things ought to be given to God. All things ought to be done unto God. 
by the power of God. Verse 2. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Hosea here continues his pattern of saying that not only have you sinned in action, but you have sinned in your heart. Because their heart is divided, they commit this adultery. Not only were they divided between idols and God, they were divided against each other. Which altar shall we sacrifice at today? Which is best? Which Baal is the most good? Who will provide the biggest harvest for us? Misplaced and sinful affections cause division in all aspects of our life. There is no harmony in idolatry. There is not unity to be found in the world with the world. And when we investigate our own relationships, godly and ungodly, our first thing to look at should be, where is the sin in this disharmony? Where is my sin in this disharmony? How am I neglecting my duties as a Christian? Our lives must be for God, by God, and to God. There is no expectation for unity outside of Christ and his will. You may think that you have real friendships with men in the world, but those relationships which are not founded upon Christ will indeed perish. They will divide your affections and they will not last. How many of us, trying to maintain some semblance of our old man, our old life, keep around these people? I've done it. You keep around these toxic people who, to their credit, have been good friends historically. And yet you bring problems to them and you air your grievances to them and they say, good, that person deserved your wrath. I have done that so many times where in the earnestness of my Christian character have brought forth a genuine concern to someone that's not a believer and how do they respond? Ungodliness. And they make you think in an ungodly way. And you bring that ungodly mentality back to your friends, to your family, to your church, and you treat them with the contempt that your, that your worldly friends, families treated your, 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 your advice with. It is, a, it is a very dangerous thing to be married unto the world. And Israel was paying the price for their marriage. Israel was paying the price to their mar- for their marriage with, with the pagans and with the idols and the Baals. If our lives are not springing forth good and godly fruit, the most important question is not to ask, who did this to me? Yeah. We must ask ourselves, where is my heart? What is dividing my heart? Where's my sin in all of this? Because we are called to be responsible over our sin. Not anyone else's sin. What is dividing my heart? Where are my affections? Verse 3. For now they shall say, we have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? At the end of verse 2, we read, he shall break down their altars, he shall spoil their images. Israel's response is that that they deserve this. Because we feared not the Lord. A king would not profit them a thing. They did not fear Jehovah, and they would soon find out that this is the case. They neglected the word of the Lord, and God would, by destroying the altars and idols, cause them to confess, hey, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we were wrong. 
They, they should have taken advantage of God's long suffering while they yet were not under judgment. But they played with their idols to the point of provoking God's righteous judgment. How much can we relate to this? That in our lives and in the lives of all men who have a beating heart, who living in a season of neglect take advantage of God's grace and patience, saying, I'll repent tomorrow. It is easy to not see ourselves in this text because we're talking about Israel, the people of God of old. These were stiff-necked, stubborn people, right? That's not me. I don't have any idols in my closet. I don't don't have any calves set up in the cities. How can I possibly relate to these people? I'm nothing like them. But we ought to see ourselves in this text, to be reminded that God is patient and merciful, and he is also just in that he can't deny himself. And so we hear Paul's words, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so in the sight of our sin, we must flee to Christ every single time. Every single time. Verse 4. They have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Here is set forth the double-tongued nature of Israel. They outwardly would make covenants. Say, I'll be better this time, Lord. We, we swear by our covenant. They renew their covenant. And yet they swear falsely to God. They, they, they outwardly with their mouth confess. And in their heart, they have no intentions of being faithful to Jehovah. They perjured themselves, in other words. And thus sinned more grievously towards the Lord. Why? For God searcheth hearts. How egregious is that? Speaking to the Lord, knowing that he searcheth your heart and knows what your heart is saying, what your heart is feeling, what your heart is thinking. How egregious, how even more egregious is that? That knowing who God is, they would just falsely swear before God. This is is a very serious sin that Israel had committed. For God searcheth the heart and is not fooled by the schemes of men. Yet despite Israel's words, their sin was apparent. Like a child who tries to hide the fact that he's written on the walls with a blue marker. And his parents bring him to the wall and say, who did this? He says, it wasn't me. And as he holds his hands up, the blue marker is all over his hands. And his face. And his neck. And his shirt. Because children get marker everywhere when they write on walls. They were trying to hide like that. We see in the text that their their fields bore hemlock in the furrows. And a furrow, when you plow a field, it's the little grooves. You drive in downtown Gilbert, there's still fields around. You can see the the grooves. That's That's a furrow. And in the furrows was hemlock, a noxious herb or weed, a bitter root. Nothing that was useful. This imagery tells us a story of a people who plowed the fields in vain, and their judgment would be noxious weeds springing forth from the land. Israel should not have been surprised that their idolatrous behavior had produced bad fruit. And in fact, we're going to see in this text today, in this chapter, that what you sow, you reap. And Israel would soon find out this to the full extent of what that could possibly mean. Verse 5. 
The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Bethaven, for the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it, for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. I find it interesting that the prophet Hosea calls them the inhabitants of Samaria, Samaria, not even dignifying Israel with a proper title given to God's covenant people. You merely inhabit the land. You merely inhabit the land. He declares that they shall fear for their idolatry. The calves of Bethaven, he mentions, and Bethaven means house of idolatry, a sarcastic reference to, to Bethel, house of the Lord. So Israel, Hosea, the prophet, is now mocking Israel. Israel had placed their hope in these calves. Some commentators say that these calves were quite literal, set up in the major cities. Others say that it merely represents the extent of their, of their idolatry, that they had these calves, which were their idols. But they had entrusted their safety, their provision, their hope in these calves. So they would mourn over these idols because the glory of them would depart from them. They would be taken from them, and then where is their hope? How powerful an image is that? The things that we place our hope in, when they're taken from us, we shout out, why, Lord, instead of thank you? This is such a common thing that we do in our hearts constantly. We place our hope in this thing or that thing, and when that thing or this thing fails us, we cry out to the Lord, why hast thou done this unto me? When you should be saying, Thank God for taking this from me. Thank God for taking this from me. Yet they would be fearful because they had provoked the Lord their God. They had provoked the Lord their God. So there's three observations that I would like to make from verse 5 in one application. The first is that the people and the priests were committed to this idol worship. Not only did they participate, they rejoiced. And three, this would cause mourning when these idols failed. The application is that no person goes their whole life without placing their hope in something other than God, right? Yeah. We, we are not perfect. And this should be apparent to anybody here whose heart is beating. The expectation is not perfection. The expectation is that in your heart, you attain after the things of the Lord. Pursue that. Fix your heart. Root out the indwelling sin that corrupts you. And don't try to replace true heart worship with externalities. We ought to, by the power of God, become extremely talented at identifying our own individual idols. The things that from the time of our youth continue to come back as a sore in our life. Whether that be unhealthy relationships, pornography, backbiting, slander, spending your money foolishly to get a, a rise, a shot of adrenaline, gambling. We need to be in tune with these idols that we pursue. Lest we get to a, a day where the Lord finally takes it from us and we're shocked like Israel is here. Oh my goodness, I did not know. We should never be in a place where our idols are so blinded to us that we do not know they are there. That is a very, very dangerous place to be, dear church. A very dangerous place to be. 
It may be a job, a house, a spouse, children, family. You know your idols. And that is why the people of God and the means of grace are so important. They're so important. When we have these moments or perhaps seasons of idolatry, it's important that we are especially willing to hear the wounds of a friend. That is why these people in this room are here for you. We must be willing to hear the wounds of a friend, to take them with grace. For these idols we set up for ourselves are often unrecognizable by us in our sin. Which is another reason to surround ourselves with people who genuinely care about our spiritual health. And not those who do not care one way or another about your right worship of Jehovah. This is extremely important in the most difficult component of the Christian life. Our friends and our family whom we've loved, whom has, who has loved us. There comes a point where we have to draw lines and say, they are not healthy for us. They are causing these old idols that I have put to death to come back shinier than ever in our life. It's very difficult, but very worth it. Verse 6. It shall be also carried unto Assyria for, the, for a present to King Jareb. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. These calves that Israel had set up would be carried off by a conquering nation, Assyria, to pacify probably their conquest. Note that it was not the worship to Jehovah that was being carted off. If you recall Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant, what did they haul off? The Ark of the Covenant. When the Assyrians come and conquer Israel, what idols are they going to take? The pagan idols. Because Israel's God was the Baals. It is a tremendous shame upon Israel that this is the state of their worship. When a conquering nation defeats another, they would take their gods as a sign that their gods had won. And so by Assyria taking Israel's pagan bales, their calves, Assyria could no longer recognize that they were even a nation that worshipped Jehovah. So total was their idolatry. <coughs> Who would Assyria see as Israel's God? Their calves, their idols. We talked about recently, I forget where, Jonah. How believers are often put to shame by unbelievers, put to shame by their unbelievers. How shameful is that when Assyria comes and conquers Israel and they take away the calves? There are so many applications to that in our life. I, I, I'm sure you're thinking of something right now. Right. There are so many times in our lives where we do that. We're so caught up in this thing and that thing that secular, our secular friends and family have to come along and say, hey, uh, don't, aren't you a Christian? I didn't think Christians did that. Such a horrible, shameful thing it is, and I've experienced it time and time again. The beautiful thing is that, again, Christ is there. Open arms. Open arms. Verse 7. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. This verse parallels verse 6. Not only would their idols be carried off, their king would be cut off. The two things that they had, had put their hope in, trusted for protection and provision, would be cut off. They put their hope in the idols over Jehovah. They asked for a king instead of Jehovah. And so what are the two things that are going to be cut off and taken away? Their idols and their kings. 
the two things that Israel had placed their trust in. Hosea here, the prophet, compares this to foam upon the water, foam which has no substance. Calvin says, what is foam but the excrement of the water? For whatever is decayed in the water passes into foam. Verse 8. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Hosea declares destruction of Israel's high places. Avon literally means idolatry. The thorn and the thistle shall come upon their altars. Their security would be overgrown with thorns when they were taken by the Assyrians. Think back to Genesis. The thorns springing forth from the ground as a result of the fall. Hosea loves to make references to Moses. Loves to make references to Moses. And it's such a powerful parallel. The prophet then says for the mountains to cover them. This is perhaps a little bit of a confusing statement to us. But think of a mountain falling down on you. A whole mountain. Think of South Mountain being picked up and thrown on you. The prophet Hosea says, please, Lord, do that. Do that. Let the hills fall on us. It would be better for a mountain to come down on us than for us to be carried away by the Assyrians. Death would be better than what we're about to face. It would be better to face a mountain-crushing death than to stay alive under such judgment, under such scorn, under such a great divorce. Verse 9. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gebeah. There they stood. The battle in Gebeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Last week we read about Gebeah from Judges 19. We learned how wicked Gebeah was and how it, it, it actually wasn't really all that different from Gomorrah. Such a wicked, wicked place. Israel had been long in their sins, in other words. The Lord was not quick to judge for some minor grievance. It wasn't as though Israel was thinking about worshiping the Baals. Though that's where it started. They had fully committed themselves unto idols. Like when Paul arrives in Athens. Full of idols. Wholly committed to idols. This was Israel. No better than the common pagan society. The battle in Gebeah here represents the battle of the sins of Gebeah and how they had not impacted Israel in the slightest. It had not overtaken them. Yet God was about to visit them in judgment. So despite the fact that they had a long history of this sin, a long time to learn, God was about to visit upon them and judge them. We read in verse 10, It is my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. God reveals his purpose here. It is in my desire that I chastise them. Not as though God is moved to emotion here. God is not sentimental. He's not being moved to emotions here. He condescends to us in our language to communicate the great love with which he loves us. 
The great love with which he loves Israel. And the only way we can understand that is by this kind of language. And the people shall be gathered against them. God has all things in his hands, dear church. Even the people who would be a judgment upon Israel are in God's hand. This is something as Calvinists we really don't live by sometimes. We see blessings as curses. We see God's chastisement as just luck or lack thereof. And yet we must remember, like, God using foreign nations to chastise Israel. And God using foreign nations even sometimes to bless Israel. God uses all things for his glory and the benefit of his people. And sometimes the benefit that he has for you is not the benefit that you imagine. Such an important truth to hold on to that we see here in Hosea. They didn't want to be carted off by the Assyrians. I'm sure there was not a single Israelite that was like, yeah, put us in captivity. They liked their cushy life of Baal worship. They liked their kings. They liked their idols. Yet God was sending an army, sounding a bell, sending an eagle of judgment for their benefit that they might have a season without him and realize all that they had squandered and returned. When they shall be blinded, or when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows, the two furrows, both their eyes, judgment would be plain and apparent, not subtle. It would be right upon them. There would be no mistake when Jehovah came. Verse 11 And a frame is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over her upon her fair neck. I will make a frame to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Here Israel is compared to a heifer. And that's never a good thing. Who was taught and loved to do the work of the Lord. But a heifer will not take a yoke. It sort of passes through the threshing floor as a hobby. Not good at taking directions. So though God had trained Israel, trained them to learn and to love and to know, they refused in their stubbornness and their stiff-neckedness. Ephraim pretended obedience, but as we read in the text, I passed over her fair neck. They would not take the yoke, so the Lord treated them with severity. We see in the text, I will make a frame to ride. He will deal with Israel according to what they deserve. He will send them out, and Israel will remain in their afflictions until the Lord see fit to make them return. Verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Hope. The tone shifts here. The tone shifts. The prophet, despite Israel's impending judgment, calls them to repentance. It is time to seek the Lord. Hosea still, after all of this idolatry, after all of this rebellion, still appeals to their covenant obligations, reminding them that God is still yet faithful to everything he has ever said. To everything, despite we've been reading for chapter after chapter after chapter of what 
Israel has done against Jehovah. And yet, the prophet here in verse 12 says, return. There is still yet time. Return. What a tremendous testimony to the goodness of Jehovah and the faithfulness of our God. Verse 13, ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. The prophet uses sowing and reaping languages, language in verse 12 and 13. Galatians 6, 7 says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, he shall also reap. God repays what man is due always. There is never a time where a man is, has been done an injustice by God. God repays what man is due always. It says here in the text, ye have eaten the fruit of lies. They had believed falsehood and trusted it for sustenance. Now, there, there's a couple of, of comments here that I want to take note of. In the first place, they believed it. They had heard the lies They had firstly exposed themselves to the pagan nations, married their children off, and brought that strange worship into their nation. So they had set themselves up to hear lies. They had chased after those lies, and then upon hearing those lies, they said, this knowledge is better than the knowledge that we've been given by Jehovah. And then they went after it. And not only did they go after it, they trusted it. They committed themselves to it. There is a process We don't just accidentally end up living in sin. This is not something that we fall and stub our toe. So many people that I have heard in my life, and even myself, act as though they are a victim of their sin. They act as though they are completely powerless, despite the fact that they claim to be a believer. If you are a believer, you are not powerless because you have the Holy Spirit. In yourself, of course you're powerless. You can do no thing. But as a Christian, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God. No excuse. No excuse. And so to say that your sin is just sort of happening to you is to reject the very power of God, the helper that our Lord Jesus Christ has sent to you. It is to mock and to scorn God himself. And so we live as Calvinists who believe in the Holy Spirit who believe in the Holy Spirit. They had trusted and then believed falsehood. They trusted also in their own hearts, their own ways. It says here they followed after mighty men and not their mighty God. Emphasis added by me. By pursuing the mightiest of men, they had neglected the mightiest, the most high, the most glorious, Jehovah. This is also a common trap for us. We see people that have it all together, supposedly. That have the things we want, that have the family we want, that have the life we want. And maybe this one might ring true to a a couple of you. They might have the emotional disposition that you want. How is this person always so happy-go-lucky or joyful? How does this person never seem to be stressed about anything? How are they so unfazed when things go up and down in their life? I would imagine either they're a really, really good liar or they have Christ. And so we shouldn't look at these people as some unattainable objective because the source 
of their joy and the source of their, their stability and the source of their hope comes not from them. It comes from above. They followed after mighty men rather than following after their mighty God. Verse 14. Therefore shall a tumult ray arise among thy people and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. As Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle, the mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. The prophet appeals here probably to a battle that had taken place near Israel that was so horrendous that, that everybody knew about it. They knew how destructive it was, how brutal it was, how merciless it was. We get this from the text here. It says that the mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. This is a horrific reference that the prophet Hosea hears, uses here. He describes the brutality of this battle. And then he says in, in verse 14, we'll read it again now with that in context. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people. This will happen to you. There will be no mercy. There will be no mercy. Upon all thy fortresses, they shall be spoiled. All of their strongholds, the walls they've built, the kings they've set up, this will all be brought to the ground. There is nothing that they can go and do outside of Jehovah that will result in victory, in conquest, in success. And yet they've placed their hope in all of those things. In every one of those things. Verse 15. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. The chapter ends with the cause of judgment. It was their wicked worship. And their wicked worship was caused by their lack of knowledge. Their judgment would be swift. The text says, in the morning. And their king, who was unduly appointed, represents Israel's unfaithfulness, as they had chosen the king over Jehovah. And that king would be cut off in what way? Completely. Their idols would be taken away from them, carted off. They would be put to shame. Their king would be taken, cut off from them. They would have nothing that they had built of their own will apart from Jehovah. As we close our time here tonight, I have some points for application that I'd like us to meditate on this week. The first is that our state of sin and idolatry is something done entirely by our own choosing. Nobody makes us sin. Nobody makes us go after false gods. And so our misery and our dryness is always of our own doing. It is always of our own doing. There is not a time when you are dry in your faith, you have a lack of zeal for the Bible, where you sit there and can look at someone else and say, oh, well, Pastor Dane did this to me. Jared did this to me. He was mean to me yesterday. And so therefore, I'm mad and I'm dry and I'm sad and I don't want to go pray. It is not your brothers, your friends, your family, the world. It is not their fault that you do not attain unto the word of the Lord and do not attain to prayer. Practically speaking, we have to fight these things. We have to cast down the lofty opinions of ourselves, which say, I'm good on my own. I can do it. I can bear down. I can pull myself up up from my bootstraps. No, you can't. And when 
We approach God, we do so not thinking that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We approach God knowing that we can't do any of that. There is nothing, no clothes we can put on that are holy enough. So pray, dear church, that the Lord would give you the wisdom to see your idols before the Lord steps in and removes the idols and the kings himself. Such a horrible thing that is. When God enacts his, ju- his chastisement in our life. Know that he is not quick to do this. He is long-suffering and patient. And he will give you every opportunity to turn, like we see in verse 12. After chapters and chapters, which detail the heinousness of Israel's sin, he says, return! And so we, being the sons and daughters of God, can do the same. We see that the Lord is always willing, especially in verse 12 here, to receive the repentance of his people. You are never too far off in Christ that you cannot return. Yet God desires heart worship and not just external religion. So when you return, do so with your heart. Don't show up for your friend who's judging you. Who says, you used to be a Christian, what happened? Don't do it for them. Don't do it for them. Our repentance must be doxological and sincere. Or we are only repenting for ourselves or somebody else. Which is, like Israel, a vine with no fruit. We will bear no good fruit with that heart. There will be nothing to pick from the stalk. So do not wait long in sin, dear church. While the Assyrians are preparing for battle. While the horn is sounded. While the eagle swoops in. Do not wait. Do not set up altars and kings supposing they will protect you. Your hopes outside of Christ will wither and die and fade. Those altars will be overgrown by thorns and thistles in your captivity to your sin. Those things will seem less and less important and you will fully, fully, fully go into whatever it is your heart is after. The semblance, the appearance of religion which you maintain, can only sustain you for a short season. And if you have no heart worship, that external religion will fade too. And typically the way this goes is you cut out the people in your life and you start hanging out with the other people until people realize you're not around anymore. And then when you're gone, no one notices. And you're in the world. Do not be as the Israelites, like a wild ass walking up a hill alone. Say with Paul, for to me to live, to live for, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And finally, do not become hardened like Israel against the voice of the Lord. Do not reject the corrections of a godly person in your life, the corrections of the word as you read it. Approach the word ready to be taught. Approach the word ready to be fed. Approach the word hungry and starving, knowing that the food that is in there will sustain you far beyond this life. There is a feast, dear church. Your God is jealous for you. And that should make you both fearful and also very, very, very warm. Very, very, very grateful that my God cares enough about me to bring the rod down on my back. Such a comfort that is. Knowing that you cannot live in your sin for long. 
before you will hear one of the people of God come into your life and say, brother, sister, repent. Before you read the word of God and say, that sounds like me, I think I may be Israel here. And when you hear those voices, both from scripture and from a loving friend, heed them. Heed them. For the love of our great God, heed them. Your God is jealous and desires that you live unto him. In John fifteen eleven, and we'll close with this, Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. I'll read that one more time for us. These things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. There is always more joy. There's always more of Christ. The well is endless and deep and full of living water. So approach him. Approach the word. Approach the son. Kiss him. And drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach thee tonight as thy children. We approach thee tonight asking for more. For more of thy love. For more of thy truth. For more experience of thy word. We pray, Lord, that by thy spirit we may be changed for thy glory. That our joy may be complete only in thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.